Good morning, and uh, we're glad you're here at Christ Community Lewa Campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, glad you're here, and uh, hope you had a good summer so far. Um, and it uh, feels like summer, doesn't it? But we're really delighted you're here. I hope you sense the presence of Christ here, uh, and a special warm welcome to each one of you. It's uh, great to see you on this summer day. Well, what would it take for you to worship somebody? I mean, really, worship someone as God himself. We all admire people, don't we? We should, I think. There are many in our world that, is, that are very gifted. They have great accomplishment. Some have extraordinary character. There's something about the human experience where we emulate heroes, either explicitly or implicitly. But to worship someone as God himself, that is something very, very different. We may put some on a heroic pedestal, but all of us know that fellow humanity, no matter how brilliant, bright, and great they are, they have clay feet like us. But what about worshiping at someone's divine feet? See, that is not only a big, big stretch in the 21st century for us. If we understand the first century, it was a big stretch for first century people as well. If we walk back with our sandals to the first century, we will enter a Greco-Roman world. The Greek and Roman people in one sense worshipped a pantheon of gods, small gods, and their rulers were seen to some extent as kind of gods. But there was one group throughout the entire vastness of the Roman Empire in a remote enclave on the eastern sections that would have never done this, ever. They were called the Hebrew or Jewish people. For the Jewish people or the Hebrew people to worship a human being as God or even semi-divine would have been absolutely and utterly inconceivable. The Jewish people were uniquely and strictly monotheistic, and they were self-consciously so. They saw worship and obedience to the one transcendent creator God as the defining characteristic of their worldview and their core identity. And yet, at the conclusion of our text this morning, The very Jewish gospel writer, Matthew, pens these words regarding a very Jewish Jesus. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, the thoughtful reader in the first century, as well as the 21st century, is forced to ask this question. How on earth did this happen? How do we account for this heart-stopping, paradigm-shattering moment in the lives of a group of Jewish followers of a very Jewish Jesus? That was his cultural context. Now, perhaps it's hard to make a comparison, I think, but here, I'll give it a shot. Think about our 21st century context. Let's imagine a very close friend of ours, friend of yours, who is a strict vegan in their diet. And you know their dietary conviction 
flows from a deep well of religious and moral conviction. You also know your friends, family, and many generations before them come from a religious and strict vegan home and a family line of vegans. So being a vegan is not just something your friend does, it is something he or she is. It is essential to their core identity. So walk with me down the plaza on a Saturday evening in Kansas City, the beautiful Country Club Plaza. And you stroll in to the Plaza 3 restaurant. And here, as you walk through the door, go by a table, here is your friend with their entire family enjoying a juicy Kansas City Strip USDA Prime steak. You would probably pick your jaw off the floor, wouldn't you? You maybe rub your eyes to go, am I seeing things? You would be completely and utterly flabbergasted. How awkward it'd be to walk by your friend's table. What would you say? Well, with a bit of decorum, you probably wouldn't say anything. But you know you'd think it. I would. I'd be like, good grief. How did this happen? This is incredible. And this is exactly where Matthew has us as we enter the text. Every verse of this text greets us with a kiss of incredulity as we enter it. It's like, wow, how did this happen? Because here we have a Jewish Hebrew people who comparatively are like sort of ultra-strict vegans who are all of a sudden eating steak in front of our eyes. And if we know the history, for generations they had been vegans, so to speak, in a world of omnivores. And if you know the Old Testament, we trace their history, friends, in the Old Testament, the last time their family ate meat, their stomachs literally exploded. I won't go into more gross details. Spoil your dinner. See, worshiping only one God, the one true God, wasn't a preference. It was their core identity. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for a small group of Jewish devotees to monotheism, to worship Jesus as they would worship the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac was earth-shattering. Far, far beyond your uber-vegan or vegan friend sitting down to a juicy 12-ounce Casey strip. So the thoughtful reader of the text asked this question. How did the unimaginable become a life-altering, culture-reshaping, historical-making new normal. And again, it leads to two-plus billion adherents of Christianity in some way today. How is that possible? If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 14. Now, as a church family across our campuses, we have been exploring together Matthew's gospel. It's been a rich study, I think, at least for me and our teaching team. 
And for 13 chapters, Matthew has been unpacking this primary theme. In other words, what is the good life and how do we experience it? And Matthew is a brilliant literary artist. Think of a painter. And what he does is he kind of presents to us a kind of show-and-tell literary approach, just like you might do with one of your work colleagues this week or your classmates in school this year. If we've been following along, if you've been here, you know that Matthew's focus in the show-and-tell literary structure has primarily been to tell us what Jesus said. But now when we come to chapter 14, he turns it upside down. The focus is to show us what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did tells us much about who Matthew thinks Jesus is. He will show us much of what Jesus did, and he will sprinkle just a little bit of what Jesus said in the midst of these stories. So Matthew understands, and most literary artists understand, that a picture is worth a thousand words. Last week in chapter 13, if you were with us, we saw how Matthew focused on Jesus many years as a Nazareth carpenter, Jesus the blue-collar worker. Now notice the contrast in chapter 14. Matthew's literary lens zooms in on Rabbi Jesus, the itinerant miracle worker. Last week, notice the connection. Thematically, Matthew moves from last week's text from wonder and faith in the extraordinariness of Jesus' ordinariness to now the wonder and worship of the extraordinariness of Jesus' extraordinariness. He pushes us, heart and mind, to the highest level of thought. So looking at Matthew 14, what I'd like to do is three things this morning in flowing from the text. First, I'd like us to look briefly at an underlying question. Secondly, the focus of the text is an unforgettable day. And then third, it builds to an unsurpassable king. Underlying question, right? Unforgettable day and an unsurpassable king. Let's dive in. The underlying question. This question is under the surface of the entire Gospel of Matthew. And notice in chapter 14, Matthew sets the stage... (laughs) with a rather grim story, doesn't he? Of a demented King Herod. And Herod's unconscionable execution of John the Baptist. You don't want to read that before you go to bed. I assure you, if you have a constitution like mine. But we must not miss what the story does in the chapter. It serves to raise, once again, this underlying question so important to Matthew. And the underlying question is this. Just who is this Jesus? That's the underlying question of all the gospel writers and Matthew himself. Look with me at verses 1 and 2, chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And Herod says to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Matthew wants us to know that not only is Jesus getting the attention of the Jewish leaders, Jesus is grabbing the attention of the Roman puppet King Herod, who ruled over Palestine in the first century with an iron fist. 
And you'll notice, like the Jewish religious leaders, Herod's explanation of Jesus is a supernatural one. It's hard to deny that. The unbelieving Jewish leaders in an earlier chapter just say, ah, Jesus is demented. He's, he's a puppet of Satan. Herod doesn't go there in his Roman pantheon. He's superstitious. He has a more superstitious category. He thinks John the Baptist must have come back to life in the form of Jesus. Why? Because he executed John the Baptist. And ever since then, seeing the miraculous power of Jesus, Jesus is Herod's Nazareth nightmare. He's giving Herod some sleepless nights, no question. So having surfaced the underlying question of who Jesus is in verses 1 through 12, now Matthew describes this unforgettable day with Jesus and his closest followers. Notice in this unforgettable day, Matthew connects seamlessly two stories that happened in, in history, two miracles Jesus did. And the miracles reveal who Jesus is. And you will notice the themes of personal, compassionate, powerful, and gracious as the king. So let's press into the unforgettable day. It begins, if you'll notice, in the miraculous multiplication of the fish and loaves, highlighted in verses 13 to 21. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the compassionate king. He does it through the whole story, and he centers it in the word compassion. You can see it there. Now, let's remember that rock star-sized crowd. It's like Taylor Swift moment, okay? Rock star crowds are following Jesus. Jesus is the first century rock star in Palestine. He's healing many in miraculous ways. He's teaching them in stunning ways. Sounds great, right? But a problem arises in the story. The disciples of Jesus are hearing lots of growly tummies. Evening is approaching. You, you feel it settling in around you. And there are no food trucks here, no restaurants. And so the disciples, his 12, go to Jesus, say, hey, Jesus, send the crowds home. They're getting hungry. And Jesus surprises them. He says, no, 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 no. You feed them. Uh, right. And the gospel writer John helps us here. Because John says, of all the disciples, we don't know what they did, but one guy started looking for food. His name was Andrew. Great name. I tell Andrew I don't get mad, I just get even, you know. So, uh. But Andrew, brilliant Andrew, is scouring the crowd. You get this picture and he finds this little lad with a lunchbox. Of all the crowd, 5,000 plus with women and children. This is a big deal. One lunchbox. And in the lunchbox are a few, you know, measly loaves, little pieces, five pieces of bread. I love the specificity. Know how historical that is. It's not myth. <laughs> Two small dried fish. And Jesus takes his kid's lunch pail that Andrew brings to him, blesses it, and miraculously, miraculously feeds an army with it. And there are 12 baskets left over. From this little kid's lunch pail. Have you ever had this demented imagination? I do. What? This little kid is one of the heroes of the New Testament. He gave up his lunch with a hungry tummy. And his mom is even more of a hero that packed the lunch. What about the other kids? Right? <laughs> and let's not forget that the one guy, or one of the guys, who saw it all with his very own eyes and touched it was the one holding one of the 12 baskets of leftover food. Matthew himself who writes this. Do not miss that. 
What an unforgettable day it must have been for one former astonished tax collector. That was Matthew. Now, we must not miss this. Some of us have a familiar summer. The Bible's new to us, but <laughs> many of us have heard this story about Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes. But its importance is huge. All four of the gospel writers include this. This is the only miracle of Jesus apart from his resurrection from the dead that all four gospel writers independently write about. Now, the early church, early followers of Jesus, saw this miracle as extremely important for who Jesus is. Not only did they write about it and talk about it, they built it into the architecture of their worship spaces. One of the most wonderful things, and many years ago I studied in Israel and worked with archaeologists, one of the great stories of archaeology for the Bible, and the New Testament particularly, is how the early church, church folks in brilliant artistry in tile mosaics reminded themselves when they came to worship in their Christian place of worship of this miracle. And it was right at their feet when they kneeled and bowed before Jesus to worship him. And one of them is the 4th century mosaic. I think we have one of these. It's on Togbatha, near the Sea of Galilee. Archaeology has brought this up from the floor, the brilliant artistry of this story. And there are more of them. Because for the 1st century believers, Jesus doing this reminded them of who Jesus really is. You will also notice in the text that the, these Jewish listeners and readers saw the connection immediately of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, where God miraculously provided manna or bread from heaven for his people in the wilderness. You remember that? The Jewish people knew that the Messiah who one day would come would be the bread of life. He would be their provider, their Jehovah Jireh. And in John's gospel, Jesus will explicitly make this messianic connection, saying literally, I am the bread of life. But here Matthew makes this connection in a more implicit way by showing Jesus actually bringing manna from his hands and feeding the multitude of people. Matthew is saying Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. He is the compassionate king. And Jesus cares about you and me. It is Jesus who can really meet our every need. See, each one of us comes here this morning with many needs in our lives. We may not be worried about having any food to eat tonight. I don't know. I hope not. And if you are, talk to me. <laughs> but we all have deep needs, very real needs and very real longings, each one of us. Those needs may have a deep, deep struggle in our life that we feel, patterns of sin, physical afflictions, a mental health need, the loss of intimacy in marriage or a close friendship. Or you may be here this morning and have the hardest time forgiving someone who has hurt you this week or this year or since you were a young person. And maybe you're here this morning and your soul feels empty and you are wandering through life as if it is ultimately meaningless. Perhaps the greatest need in your life this morning may be the need for the strength you need this week for a very demanding schedule at home or at work. See, Jesus can multiply the loaves and fishes of material things that you may need. 
but he can multiply your time and energy and strengthen your faith and community as well. Let me ask you a question. Who or what are you looking to to meet those needs in your life? What are they? See, so often we pursue every imaginable option but Jesus. For many of us, it is only when our back is against the wall, when we're at the end of our rope, that we turn to Jesus. And Jesus is there when we're at the end of our rope or against the wall, you bet. But Jesus is there in the smallest moments when we need him every day. See, we need to grasp that we were created not with self-sufficiency in mind, but God's sufficiency in mind. We were never designed as human beings to live and thrive within the confines of our own self-sufficiency. If we understand this bedrock truth, then Jesus will become our first resort we go to instead of our last resort. You know what stuns me in this text? And sometimes you have to be careful because there's a lot that's not here. But there is a haunting silence here in this story. There is no indication, not even a bit, that the disciples who were closest to Jesus, who had seen him do all these amazing miracles, ever even considered going to Jesus to meet their need. It's just absolutely not in their radar screen. Wow. How true that is in my life, often. How about you? What needs are pressing into your life this morning? What's weighing heavily on your heart this morning when you came in? Will you look to Jesus to meet those needs? See, God's provision of your needs may indeed have a very specific supernatural solution. Jesus does that. But much of God's provision is through the conduit of the many resources he has already entrusted to each one of us in the created order and the community we're a part of. Trusting Jesus to meet your needs, whatever they may be, calls us to do our part by pressing into God's design for all of life. Learning from Jesus how to live our lives like he would if he were us and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit every day. Some of us have prayed and prayed, haven't we? For God's provision in some area. And your prayers seem to go unanswered and we wonder, can we trust Jesus to meet our deepest needs? Can we? Let me encourage you to keep praying and trusting whatever that is in your life. And what I've discovered, what I am discovering, what I'm wrestling with in my own life is God's unmistakable presence may be his most important answer to me rather than fixing it immediately. Wow. God knows what your needs are. God's timing may be different than you ever want it to be. And the bridge between God's timing in your life and my life and what we want is often the path to spiritual maturity and deeper intimacy with precious Jesus. Matthew continues this unforgettable day in the life of Jesus. Isn't it something? And he shows us another story that occurred in time and space. Verses 22 to 33. It's another story that many of us have heard before, right? That's the danger of messages like this. It's a story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And it's a story that shows us Jesus is the powerful king. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to feel the darkness as you enter this story again. Matthew frames it around the arrival of evening. You feel the darkness settling in. As night settles in, as was his regular habit, Jesus embraces the disciplines of solitude and prayer. He goes off by himself to have communion with his heavenly father. Notice the discipline of evening prayer. 
His disciples get in a boat, right? That's what the story says. You can look at it. They attempt to row across the Sea of Galilee in a strong easterly wind. And it's a headwind. It's a strong headwind. I remember when my son and I were canoeing in the Missouri River on a campout, trying to go against the current, let alone the wind. I mean, you know, we tried to go across it, and I'm telling you, we were further behind than when we started. And we were exhausted for 20 minutes. Can you imagine? Here's Matthew, the writer of this text, along with his colleagues, worn out from a long day, and they are weary from fighting an angry sea. It's now three or four in the morning. They haven't hit the eastern shores yet of the Sea of Galilee. They've been up all day and all night. How do you stay awake? You know, I don't know if they had caffeine or not. But if it was me, I'd tell scary stories. Is that just me being demented? To kind of keep each other alive and on edge, right? We've got to get to land. So series, all of a sudden, the scary stories they're telling become real. It's pitch black. Most likely, there are all kinds of clouds from the wind. It is the darkest part, 3 a.m. in the morning. Only God's awake then, right? All of a sudden, between the shadowlands of their exhaustion and the undeniability of their senses, they go, ah, it's a ghost. Maybe kind of like that. And notice the text immediately, as soon as the words are out of their mouth and they're scared spitless, they hear the voice of Jesus echoing across the water like a rock skipping the pond. Look at me at verse 27. Notice the emphasis. But immediately Jesus spoke to them. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now we must not miss that Jesus' words to his fear-struck disciples have a double nuance. They are both comforting and they are shocking. They first are comforting because they recognize Jesus' distinct voice. And he tells them, chill out. Don't be afraid. But it is shocking because he identifies himself. Now, the English text, which the Greek text is translated from, which was the original text. In the English text, we have proper English, which we should. It is I. The Greek text literally says, I am. These words were not strange words to everyone there. These were the very words of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Exodus when a scared, spitless Moses is called to confront Pharaoh in Egypt and he doesn't want to do it. He says, okay, who, what do I tell Pharaoh? Who's sending me? And the response is, I am. John in his gospel will quote Jesus making this explicit declaration. I am. But notice how Matthew is more subtle. He builds up to verse 33 where the disciples will exclaim, you are the son of God. So maybe you were here this morning and you have a sense of fear in your life. It's robbing the joy in your life. Maybe you feel very fearful what lies ahead of you at work this week. I don't know. Perhaps you're approaching retirement or in retirement years. You fear the loss of significance, diminished health or income. Maybe as you look at the web or the latest feed or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the nightly news, 
You are fearful about the economy, where our culture's going, our political situation. Perhaps you have a storm brewing in your life so great you are stuck there and you can see no human solution. Some of you this morning may not have wanted to come here because honestly you feel your faith is sinking and you're ready to throw in the towel of faith. Matthew is reminding us that Jesus is the powerful king who walked on the water, who stilled the storm and can still any storm in our life. Storms that rob us from joy. Matthew is saying you can trust Jesus with any fear you face. Don't you love Jesus' words to his disciples? Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. Do not miss the truth that Matthew gives us. It is not ultimately about what my fear is. What is the fear or the greatest fear in your life this morning? It is not ultimately about your greatest fear. It is about who Jesus is. Jesus is the good shepherd who is always with us. When David, King David, wrote this, Psalm 23, it is grace with the Trinity of God. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Our good shepherd is with us. He is the compassionate king. He's the powerful king. And notice what Matthew does uniquely of all the gospel writers next. That Jesus is the gracious king. You'll notice in the story that Matthew includes something that no other gospel writers do, and that's focusing on Peter. Peter sinks in the water in the story. Matthew, the tax collector, understood what it was like for Jesus to reach down in his messed up life and rescue him. Matthew experienced such grace as an outsider, and he's brought into Jesus' fellowship, and all of a sudden, here's big Peter. And you see Matthew focusing on Peter's failure and Jesus' response to him. Peter says to Jesus, if you walk back, Lord, this is stunning. Lord, if it's you, of course it's you. He knows that. Command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus just says one word. I have this imagination. He goes like this. Come, come. And Peter, who's the seasoned fisherman who knows the great peril of an angry sea, who I'm sure had colleagues or friends lost at sea, actually gets out of the boat. Isn't that amazing? He walks toward Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to know how far Peter got? I have this thing against Matthew. Why did you tell me? It's driving me crazy. How many steps he took toward Jesus, I don't know, but he starts to sink. That's the picture of the text. And self-sufficient Peter knows now he is way in over his head. And he cries out, Jesus, save me. And I love the picture how Jesus tenderly and strongly takes his strong hands, reaches down and takes Peter's hand and pulls him out of the water and they walk back to the boat. Jesus has a gentle but instructive word for Peter. Oh, you a little faith, why did you doubt? In his message, Eugene Peterson knocks this out of the park. He brilliant captures the nuance of the text. He paraphrases this way. Oh, Peter, faint heart. What got into you? We have a very courageous and yet forgetful Peter who needed to grasp the good life Jesus had for him was a life of God's sufficiency and never self-sufficiency. A life of total trust in Jesus, King Jesus. Now let's remember that Peter had already seen Jesus still a raging storm. 
Notice the sequence of the Gospels. When Jesus, it was an intense storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went, shalom. Instantly, all of nature responded to him. And it became immediately quiet. Still. Peter was right there earlier, just a few months earlier. Now Jesus is just walking on the water <gasps> against the blowing wind. So what's the big deal that Matthew doesn't want us to miss? If you've been a part of our series, you know that Matthew continues to weave the bright strands of irony through his text. And we have an irony screaming out at us here. The irony is forgetfulness is not mere human weakness. It is perilous to our faith. Forgetfulness of God's past faithfulness fosters present faithlessness. See, the strength and resilience of our faith in the present is closely tied to our remembering God's faithfulness in the past. We're just like Peter, aren't we? We forget God's faithfulness in the past. And it fills our life with fear and faithfulness in the present. One of the ways we remember God's past faithfulness, strengthen our faith, and nurture our intimacy with Jesus is by embracing the spiritual practices Jesus embraced. I want you to notice how intentional Matthew is in the midst of an unforgettable day. He makes the point to point out in verse 23. Notice, and after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to pray. We need to grasp that the strength and power for Jesus to get through such a demanding day came from his private time of prayer and solitude with the Heavenly Father. How much more for us? When we follow Jesus, we not only embrace his precepts, we also embrace his practices. Jesus teaches us not only a truth to grasp with our mind, but a truth woven into the rhythm and fabric of everyday life. How are you embracing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and solitude in your life? Who is Jesus? Matthew wants us to ask that question and answer it. And he's saying Jesus is the compassionate king, the powerful king, the gracious king. But ultimately he builds to a literary crescendo saying Jesus is an unsurpassable king unsurpassable. Notice how the whole text builds to the disciples worshiping Jesus in the boat as God himself. They say truly this was the son of God. See Jesus didn't just say he was the greatest, Jesus showed it. He demonstrated his greatness by laying down his sinless life and shedding his sinless blood on a Roman cross for you and me. Without Jesus dying on the cross, none of us could ever be ultimately forgiven for our sin. Paul, the Apostle Paul, put it this way, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus not only demonstrated he is the greatest on the cross. He also demonstrated in rising from the grave, defeating humans' greatest enemy, the enemy of death. Do you know the gospel writer Mark, in capturing this story, tells us the hearts of the disciples in the boat didn't fully yet comprehend what they were saying. They said, you are the son of God, but there was a hardening. They still didn't understand the fullness of that until they get to the resurrection, and then they're all in with Jesus. When they see the resurrected Jesus, they are all in. And tradition tells us, it's a very strong tradition throughout history, that every disciple except for John died a martyr's death because they worshiped Jesus because they knew who he was. Wow. That's strong. And after encountering the resurrected Jesus on that road to Damascus, a very jealous, or very jealous, yeah, very zealous, monotheistic, devoted Jew 
by the name of Saul did the un and inconceivable. Unimaginable and inconceivable. Saul worshipped at the divine nail-scarred feet of Jesus. The one he had devoted his whole life to destroy. Wow. Saul would become known as the Apostle Paul. He would die a martyr's death in Rome because he knew Jesus was Lord and he gave his life to him. Paul answers the underlying question of just who Jesus is. And that question is important in the first century and it's important to each one of us now. Jesus is not just a figure of history. He's the most important figure of all time. And he's the most important person that you and I have to deal with. Who is he? And why does he matter? Paul writes, the one who had opposed Jesus writes, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how will I respond to this Jesus? Who is he? How we answer that matters. It's something all of us need to think carefully about. Wherever we are in our spiritual faith or journey or background. Matthew wants us, as he did, to fall at his nail-scarred feet. He wants us to declare, Jesus, you are the Son of God. So will you embrace him as your Lord and Savior? Jesus offers us forgiveness of sin. He took my sin, your sin, on his behalf. And he gives you brand new life. The life you long to live. life you were created to live. So will you become an apprentice of Jesus? Matthew says, Jesus is the king. He's the compassionate king, the all-powerful king, the gracious king, the king who has loved you before you were born, who loves your soul more than any other person in the universe. And he demonstrated by dying on the cross, the sinless son of God for you and me, so that we might be forgiven and have life. Many people talk about being the greatest, but Jesus is truly the greatest one. How do we respond to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us are at different places in our spiritual life and journey. We read these texts and we wonder what it must have been like in the first century to be that close to Jesus. And yet, because of our Lord's resurrection, because of the Spirit's presence, the manifest presence of Jesus is available to us in our life. Spirit of the living God, speak to us. Speak to each one of us. For you are the great King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, whom we worship.